If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Which can be found on page 534, if you're using the Pew Bible, 534. Psalm of Lament. When we suffer especially for an extended period of time, one of the hardest things to do in the suffering is to find words to express how we feel. You see this struggle in people all the time. I know I do. People will try to write poetry or maybe music or something that lets them express their grief and their fear. Many people need years to pass or even professional counseling in order to express what has happened to them and what those events are still doing to them. Tragically, other people just close up completely and won't talk about it at all. They can't find the words, so they just don't speak. They may struggle to find people who will understand their suffering, and without that support, the suffering often grows. Our society is based around pleasure, and procurement. So it can be hard to find popular expressions of despair that fit our circumstances. Sadly, I think the American church, although it has created mountains of praise music, has not been particularly good at creating music for mourning and for lament. Maybe we've been a little too influenced by the culture of youth. A pleasure and purchase that surrounds us. Therefore, we're very blessed, we're incredibly blessed to have the Psalms for just this reason. The Psalms put words to our suffering, so we are never in a situation where we can't find some words to express what we're going through. If we ever need to express how we feel to God in words or to others, we have this very real and very penetrating book. We can always go to the library, as it were, and borrow David's words. He helps us find our voice in the midst of our suffering. When we suffer, we need words, and the Psalms provide those words. But we don't just need any words. We don't need just general, basic words about suffering. All emergency rooms, you may have seen this in person, all emergency rooms now have that chart. You know the chart? Where is your pain from the scale to 1 to 10? Well, that's useful in the hospital, but it's not enough expression for our full humanity. What we need are words that are accurate, more descriptive, more penetrating. We need words that come from someone who knows, who gets it. We don't need words about suffering that were written in a library. We need words that were written with tears, words that ring true. And once again, what a treasure we have in the Psalms. The Psalms don't just talk about suffering. They lay open our hearts. John Calvin uh, picked up on this many years ago, and he said the Psalms were a mirror of the soul. That is, the Psalms were an accurate reflection of what goes on in the inward man. He was saying, he was trying to say, that the Psalms provide surgical words, words about suffering, deep words about suffering. We borrow these eloquent and honest words and make them our own. They can give us a voice 
when we think our disappointment or our suffering is just too deep to say. They give us a voice when all the encouragements of friends, however well-intentioned, just don't suffice. Psalm 13, our text tonight, is one of those psalms. It is a psalm we can borrow and we can sing. And whatever our struggle, and no matter how ineloquent you may be or I may be, we can pray and sing Psalm 13, and it will give us words, words that help us express ourselves to God above all. So with that introduction, let's read this wonderful psalm together. Let me invite you to stand and to listen to words of suffering and hope. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we pray that you would deal bountifully with us in this time, that as we consider this psalm, your Holy Spirit would take these words, apply them to our hearts, and strengthen us for all suffering and all struggle. And this we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're using the Pew Bible, or really most any other Bible probably, you can see for yourself that Psalm 13 is broken down into three sections or three stanzas. Verses 1 and 2, we have David's questions for the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, the center, we have David's prayer. He pleads for help. And then lastly, in verses 5 and 6, we have David's praise or his hope as he looks to the Lord for help. Psalm 13 is simple, clear, and maybe the best little example of a lament that we have anywhere in the Bible. But even more importantly, it charts a course. It leads us down a path from almost complete despair in verses 1 and 2 to praise and hope in verses 5 and 6. If you've experienced uh, really dark times in your life, gone through very difficult things, you'll want to hear these directions. you want to see how David moved very authentically, very honestly through his pain, but also ended up in praise. So let's look together at that movement from these stanzas, from stanza one to stanza three. But to do that, we need to look carefully at each stanza and feel the weight of each stanza. The first comes in verses one and two. We have David's Questions. Look what he writes there. It's a series of questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? As I mentioned a moment ago, Psalm 13 is classified as a psalm of lament. A lament, kids, is a, a passionate cry of pain or despair, often accompanied by a plea for help. 
So this is a lament. It's a cry for help, a mixture of despair and hope. In fact, I took the title for this evening's sermon from Martin Luther, who said of this psalm that here in this psalm, hope despairs and despair hopes. Hope despairs and despair hopes. That is the nature of this lament and many of the laments we find in the psalms. Now, these first two verses express the lament, the lament, the crying out. And notice with me that David's lament, his cry, is expressed through a series of questions. In fact, it is just questions at this point. That's all he gives us in the first two verses. That may seem strange at first to us, but if you look back on your own life, maybe even your life right now, you will find this to be true. The voice of agony, the voice of trials when we're in trials, that voice is often a questioning voice, isn't it? Why, God? How am I going to get through this too? How much longer? What am I supposed to do now? How can this be your plan for me? Now, out of all those questions, and I'm sure they were all running through his head, and we've all had them in dark moments, there is one question, though, that stands out, isn't there, in these two verses? Four times, four times in these two verses, David asks, how long? There are forms of suffering and trial, we all know this, that come and go quickly. We've all had bad days or a rough day, a bad moment, a terrible week. But then there are other trials, you know the type I mean, that go on and on, months and years, and threaten to last forever, and threaten to destroy our home, our lives, our families, our well-being. I wonder if just maybe in Psalm 13, we're catching David here at a point where he has accepted this suffering. In the early days, he might have said to God, why have you let this happen? But as the days and months pass, he has come, as we often do, to accept that this is God's will for him. God wants this suffering in his life. However, this suffering seems to be, to David at least, prolonged in length. He could accept the trial. He had gotten that far. But now the pain just lingers and continues. It threatens to sweep him away, wear him down, beat him flat. Isn't it true that when things are going badly, time seems to slow down? If you have ever had a really powerful pain shoot through your body, you know that seconds feel more like minutes. So too, suffering always seems to drag out. Once we are in suffering... Once we see that God has a particular hardship in mind for us, it's really only moments, maybe hours, before this question comes to us and then stays with us the entire way through that trial. Okay, God, but how much longer? How much longer? We know that he wants to refine us as gold. We've read all those passages. We've heard the sermons. But it seems like he's taking forever to respond. It's as if he's a busy cook and he's left the high heat on and has forgotten to turn it down. And we are beyond the boiling point. But David isn't just content to ask how long. He has other questions. Notice 
questions that we have as well when we suffer for long periods. In prayer, we want to tell God what it is like, how it feels. And so, mixed in with each of these how long statements, you will notice that David has added his feelings or his concerns. He's put these in the form of a question, but don't miss it. These are his feelings. These are his experience. So in verse 1, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then he asks, How long will you hide from me? And in verse 2, questions again, how long will you allow me to live in sorrow in my soul? And, And how long will you allow my enemies to triumph over me? These four questions brilliantly capture the full range of emotions that pass through us in times of intense trial. When you are suffering intensely, as one commentator noted, you suffer and your suffering hits you theologically, personally, and socially. Theologically, personally, and socially. What does that mean? Well, first, you feel isolated from God at some point. If not at the beginning, at some point along the road, you feel isolated from God. You feel that he's hiding from you. That's what David's speaking of. We all ask the question regularly, God, where are you in all of this? And what am I to do? That theological God-centered crisis that we have then spreads to our deepest person. David describes himself as having deep sorrow in my heart all day. Maybe even what we would call today depression, anxiety, extreme discouragement. You pour over your problems in your heart and stress out. How many of us have taken years off our life by the anxiety, the knots we're tied up in because of the sorrow and suffering we've experienced. This isn't then just a detached theological struggle. Where are you, God? Why are you hiding? Why aren't you listening? It is also deeply personal. We struggle. We hurt theologically. Then we hurt personally. And there's also a social element to it a social element to it. David is concerned about how his suffering, and this is true in so many of his psalms, he's concerned about how his suffering relates to the bigger picture, to other people around him. How long will the enemies of the Lord and of David be exalted while he is crushed? We can feel this way too. We see people who absolutely hate God, don't we? And yet they're living lives that are free of financial worry, full of accomplishment. They seem strong, healthy, and happy. Meanwhile, we feel defeated, weak, and miserable. Prolonged suffering hits us in all these places. We may well question our theology, suffer horribly in our heart, and question the lack of justice in the world. But even as David does this, and we walk with him through this pain, there is, even in verses 1 and 2, a ray of hope. And I don't want you to miss it. Although hurting and questioning, David is still talking to God. Whatever is happening to him, he is still bringing it to God. And don't miss this. He is not afraid to share his unvarnished feelings with God. Sadly, this is something we, and I can say it myself, it's true, we're often not willing to do. We run away from God 
or attempt to shield him from our feelings. But scripture does not do that. Rather, the scriptures encourage us to process our experiences in front of God, even when those experiences seem to deny God. And that is what is happening here. After all, remember, David knows, David knows in his heart that God never forgets anyone or anything. David will later write in Psalm 139, you have searched me and known me. You are acquainted with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. So how can David say here, how long will you forget me? Simply put, Psalm 139 is his confession. It's what he knows to be true of God no matter what. It's what God has revealed about himself. Psalm 13 verses 1 and 2 are his expression. His confession, Psalm 139, his expression, Psalm 13, 1 through 2. It's a true expression of how it feels in intense, prolonged suffering. The Bible, amazingly, wonderfully, does confession, theology, and faith like no other book. And yet, like, unlike so many pastors, it does expression and illustration just as passionately It is alive with faith and questions, pain and hope. And so once again, we can bring our questions to God. He even authored psalms to help us on our way back to him. So first you see in the first stanza, David's questions and the agony of his heart. Second of all, in the middle section, verses three and four, we have now David's prayers Maybe it's just me, but I think what David does next makes perfect sense, at least to my heart. Having poured out his questions and his agony in those questions, it's as if the table has been cleared now for prayer. And that is our second point. First, his questions, his lament. Now it's time to pray, to plead, to ask Look with me again at those central verses, verse 3 and 4. Consider, he says, answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David now turns from asking questions and starts asking for help. Maybe like many of us, he's realized that the questions may not ever be fully answered in this life. And so he realizes that the more urgent need now is for help, not necessarily just answers. Psalm 13 then not only gives us words so that we can verbalize the groan of our heart, but the spirit here also gives us words so that we can ask for help. He moves from the misery of unanswered questions to the place of dependence. God, help me, a sinner. And Did you notice how he prays? What he's doing in this middle section? His prayer is very theological. What I mean is that it's rooted in God's character. God has promised David, remember, God has promised David long life and kingship, that his throne will not fail and will not diminish and collapse. God has promised also to judge the wicked and defend his anointed, his Messiah, who in this age of the church is David. David jumps on those promises 
of God, God's faithfulness, and makes his prayer, his appeal out of them. See how David does this right at the start. We sweep past these lines so quickly, but slow down. So much of Bible study is forcing yourself to slow down. Slow down and hear this profound statement. David begins his prayer in verse 3 by saying these wonderful words. Consider and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. David, you see, right from the beginning is rooting his prayer in something. Namely, that Yahweh is his God. There is a real personal relationship between God and David. Now, that may sound obvious to you, but do you know how rare that is? The vast majority of people today have nothing like this, and the vast majority of people then had nothing like this. Muslims are never really close to God. If you know Muslim theology, he is awesome and he is distant. Hindus don't know which blood-hungry gods they should serve and what to do next for them. More to the point, the vast hordes of secular people around us live in a kind of vague spiritualism. God is out there. God for them is everywhere, but also nowhere. He certainly cannot be named or known personally. David then here is appealing to God's love and his relationship with God. He says, you are my God, and that's the basis of my prayer. As if to say, he is mine and I am his. If you're not a Christian or you're working with someone who's not a Christian, this is probably the hardest thing to explain to a non-Christian. It isn't just something you choose to believe as a Christian. Rather, it's something you know to be true. He is just with you, with you in ways you can't always explain to someone who doesn't know Christ. Well, because of this covenant relationship, this deeply personal relationship, David can say in verse 3, if you don't save me, I will die. You see, he knows that he is with God and that God, therefore, cares deeply about his life. David uses the name here, Yahweh, which is the name from the Exodus, the great salvation moment of the Old Testament, where God so clearly, remember in that moment, distinguished between his people and Egypt. Maybe David even has in his mind, as he's framing his prayer this way, maybe he even has in his mind the Passover when Yahweh passed over Egypt in death, but saved his people. He also appeals to God's justice in verse 4. He says, if you don't save me, if you don't deliver me, my wicked enemies will prevail. Egypt will win. This is something we don't do uh, very often today in prayer, but I think we need to do it more often. And I would encourage you to think about it. Since God is our God and we are his people, what happens to us reflects on him so we can and we should ask God to aid us in order to glorify himself in the earth. He may not deliver us from our current trial, but as he upholds us, we will glorify him before the world. 
As Israel's king, David is especially sensitive to God's glory and his people. And David is concerned that if his throne collapses, God's glory will be in some way harmed or his reputation discredited. So here's the point. Our prayers for help are always heard. God is a loving, tender father. However, our best prayers for help are those grounded in God's character. We appeal to what we know to be true. God is our God and God is just. In doing that, in praying out of God's character, we remind ourselves and others that we aren't asking God to hear us based on our fervency, but on the basis of who he is. God is always true to himself. And when you can count on nothing else, you can count on his character. One of the hardest things to do when you're suffering is to turn to God, even when you feel that he is not listening to you. But as hard as that is, there is something more terrible. The worst thing that could happen would be to stay forever in verses 1 and 2. It's a good place to visit. We need to go there often to ask those tough questions, but we shouldn't live there. It's very counterintuitive to turn to God when you feel that he has left you in distress. We feel like Peter who tried to walk in the water to Jesus, but then cried out halfway. But David here teaches us and helps us as we borrow his words. He helps us rise above what we are feeling and cling instead to what we know. We know God is merciful. We know God is just. We may know nothing else. But we stand on this faith and we let the torrent of our emotions break on this rock. God is our God. God is just. God will vindicate and glorify his people. We may be blown around, but underneath our feet there is always this rock. God remains unchanged. David brings his questions David brings his prayers, rooted as they are in the covenant and in God's unchangeable character, which is always the foundation of our lives. And then lastly, David brings his praise in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your covenant love or steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The English translator, um, to make it easier to read in English, have changed the word order in Hebrew. And there's nothing wrong with that. The translation you have in front of you is very accurate, and you get the same main idea. But it's interesting to read verse 5 in Hebrew and to note that the first words are about God's hesed, or his covenant faithfulness. David says literally, but for me... In your covenant faithfulness, I have trusted. Whatever may be happening in my life, no matter how bleak, I will never, I will join, never join the song of the wicked. I have a different song. I will continue to trust in your covenant faithfulness. I will continue to believe in your promises, even when those promises look unlikely. God blessed me this week with a visitor. Uh, not someone who's part of our church, but a visitor nonetheless, who was struggling with this very question. I could not believe the providence 
As we sat and talked, I could see in her this very struggle, a struggle I've had many times myself, when life's reality seems to contradict God's promises. What will I believe? The world offers so many avenues for hope, and quite often, evil seems to be winning easily. What can someone do in such a crisis? Lift up a song of faith and sing. I have hoped in your faithfulness, we say, and my heart will rejoice, if not now, then someday in your salvation. David goes on to say, he's dealt bountifully with me. Maybe he came back and wrote that line after God had delivered him from this trial. Or maybe, and I think this is more likely, he's simply able now to look back and remember that God has always been good to him. The questions of verses 1 and 2 are good and valid questions of real life experience. But the psalm does not stay there forever. With its last breath, the psalm asks us to remember the goodness of God and remembering to sing. We don't know what tomorrow may hold, but we know that his mercies cannot fail and his bounty towards us will not diminish. Psalm 13 then is a well-worn path. Questioning leads to pleading. Pleading leads to praise. How many millions of believers have walked that same path and many walk at this very moment? But no one walked this path more profoundly or more perfectly than our sweet Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did this on the cross when he took up David's words and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked the questions. He also did the pleading, didn't he, in Gethsemane when he prayed, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Most important of all, he accomplished it in his resurrection. He ascended into heaven so that the Father could deal bountifully with him forever. The Father is even at this moment raising up an entire army of people to glorify and reward and deal bountifully with his son, with the ultimate David, the ultimate Messiah. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on us as an act of bounty towards his son. If in the darkest moment then, if in the darkest moment, the moment of the cross, God was faithful and God was generous, can we doubt his faithfulness to us at any moment? Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you and praise you tonight for your faithfulness. We look back many of us on decades of that faithfulness. And when new trials come, we, we forget that faithfulness. We live in the moments. We live in the questions. We forget your love. And yet you welcome us into your presence with those questions. You let us express them. You listen patiently as we sit on your knee. But then you move us to prayer and praise and how grateful we are for this well-worn path. Father, we also thank you for the way our Savior walked this path. We thank you for the ways that he showed us through his life, through his own singing of the Psalms, how we are to suffer, how we are to pray, 
and how we are to conquer. Give us then the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the victory through trial, the victory through suffering, and ultimately for everyone here, the victory through death. We pray for this victory and the exaltation of your name and the bounty to come. In Jesus' name, amen.